Welcome to Our Missouri, a podcast about the people, places, culture, and history of the 114 counties and independent city of St. Louis that comprise the great state of Missouri. Each episode focuses on a topic related to the state, ranging from publications about Missouri's history to current projects undertaken by organizations to preserve and promote local institutions. The Our Missouri podcast is recorded at the Center for Missouri Studies in Columbia and is generously provided to you by the State Historical Society of Missouri. And now, here's your host, Sean Rost. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, or whatever hour you're tuning in to listen to the Our Missouri podcast. My name is Sean Ross, and I'll be your guide to explore the memories, moments, and misfortunes from our Missouri. While this year's Missouri Conference History may be over, the Our Missouri podcast invites listeners to meet us in St. Louis for a multi-part series focusing on several projects and institutions that document the city's history and cultural identity. Our guest today is Ed Wheatley. He currently serves as the president of the St. Louis Browns Historical Society, and he is also the author of several books, including St. Louis Browns, The Story of a Beloved Team, Incredible Cardinals, and the recently released Baseball in St. Louis, From Little Leagues to Major Leagues. Welcome to the Our Missouri Podcast, Ed. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Now tell us a little bit about where your interest in baseball really began. Well, basically, I, mean, I can say in a, in a way, I grew up in the world of baseball. Um, you know, my dad had had a long history of baseball in St. Louis with uh, high school and American Legion success. That uh, you know, kind of parallels some of the things in the book because of the teams he played for, and then he did play professional baseball with the Yankees organization before he got hurt. And then he came back to St. Louis as I was growing up and played in some of the great semi-pro leagues that were in the uh, St. Louis area in the 1950s and 60s. So, you know, I was indoctrinated with, with that, and I got to know many men who were good amateur baseball players, and many of them who then went on to play in the major leagues through that. And, um, you know, I still today play uh, in senior leagues across the country. I played in over 100 games last year. So, you know, baseball has kind of been my uh, side life. And as I went into retirement after 36 years with the the telephone company, you know, this is what I kind of made as a priority. Okay. And we mentioned that you're associated with the St. Louis Browns Historical Society. Tell us a little bit about the origins of that organization as well as some of its history. Well, the St. Louis Browns Historical Society and fan clubs, pretty unique. And the way I say it, it's unique. I mean, it's got a membership of almost 700 people for a team that has not played in 67 years. Last August, when we had our annual uh, luncheon, we had over 400 people come to the luncheon. So, I mean, think about that. A team hasn't played in 67 years, and it still has this love of this team. But you go back to Brooklyn, there is no fan club for the Brooklyn Dodgers. There's no fan club for the Philadelphia Athletics. There's no active fan club for the Boston Braves. And really, that's what really makes this thing special. Uh, The fan club was created in 1984 uh, by a gentleman named Bill Borst. Uh, Bill is still part of our team. He's on our board of directors. And, um, you know, he saw... Uh, his boyhood idol, Pee Wee Reese, get inducted into uh, Cooperstown, and he was there, and he saw what was then members of the Brooklyn Dodgers fan club, and they were cheering him. He thought, hey, uh, it's kind of sad because Rick Farrell was being inducted that same day, and there was nobody really cheering for him or no number to be retired anywhere. Uh, The Baltimore Orioles really have nothing to do with the St. Louis Browns. When the Browns went to Baltimore, They basically, well, actually, they did say the Browns were buried 
They died in St. Louis. They're buried there. Their legacy did not come east. Baltimore really starts their legacy in 1954, but they put their history to the old Baltimore Orioles of uh, the minor league fame that they had. And that's where their real focus is. You won't find retired uh, Browns Hall of Famers mentioned in Camden Yards. You won't find the 1944 pennant flag flying in Camden Yards. So, you know, Bill came back to St. Louis where he had moved and he started this fan club and it has just gone gangbusters ever since. We, um, Bill was one of the co-writers with me as I put together this Browns book. Uh, those Browns books have uh, led to two PBS uh, shown films on the St. Louis Browns. The one uh, was narrated by John Hamm uh, from St. Louis and the other was Dan McLaughlin. Uh, the great Cardinal announcer. So again, it's really about keeping this legacy alive, bringing out memories uh, of this team. So they are not forgot because they don't have any franchise in the major leagues really rallying them. I mean, you go to Oakland and you see the pennants, Tony Mack won in Philadelphia. You go to the Dodgers and you see the pictures and all the um, memories of Jackie Robinson and Pee Wee Reese and Gil Hodges and Duke Snyder and all those great players from Brooklyn. But, you go to Camden Yards, there's nothing. So it's really upon us to keep that memory alive. Now, I'm looking at your new book, Baseball in St. Louis. You discuss the sport really kind of at the title. So, yes, really from from Little League all the way up through the major leagues and, of course, mm-hmm. neighborhood baseball, company baseball. Right. Why did you feel it was so important to cover such a wide swath of baseball in the city? Well, I think a lot of it is to do with, you know, St. Louis is perceived as the best baseball town in America. I mean, I know others would challenge it, but, you know, it has very high esteem and many will agree with that. So it's like an understanding of why is this so? And, you know, you look at what I just spoke of a moment ago, you know, people are turned out and have such loyalty for a team that hasn't played in 67 years. Why is that? You know, when we showed our first Browns film on PBS, which was, uh, made kind of the chronicle, the history for you straight from the book. It's at the all-time viewership record uh, for our PBS affiliate here in St. Louis. It's this love of baseball. And where does that come from? And I open the book with the character of Annie Savoy. She is played by Susan Sarandon in the movie Bull Durham. And she says, I've tried all the religions I really have, but it's the church of baseball that fills my soul day in and day out. And it's like, that is St. Louis. Opening day is our national holiday. This town is love. But where did this love come from? And it starts at the early roots of, you know, youth baseball. And you trace how baseball came to St. Louis across America from Hoboken, New Jersey, not Cooperstown. The myth of Abner Doubleday in Cooperstown has um, been proven in the last several decades as a myth that didn't happen. Alexander Cartwright is the one who laid out what is the game of baseball taken from rounders uh, in Europe and cricket. And it was Alexander Cartwright who laid out this game in the late 1840s, and it came across the country, came to St. Louis in July 1860. The first recorded documented game under his style of play was at Fairgrounds Park in July 1860, a year before the Civil War began. And from there, it built on. It built on from a game where you got to remember, when baseball first started, there wasn't television. There wasn't cell phones, any phones. There wasn't motion picture theaters. There wasn't anything. People work long, long sweat hours in factories and offices. And baseball comes along 
can be played by anyone. And it became a form of entertainment that people would go out to the fields and it could be clubs were started. So this club would play that club or this factory would play that factory or this community would play the neighboring community and people fell in love with it. And from that, we had, you know, kids starting to play, as you mentioned, little league type games. You know, they were played in schoolyards. The St. Louis Police Department really created the first little leagues when they set a playground league for the elementary schools. And we go in there and we have uh, memorabilia and relics and stories from the 30s and 40s. And one of the things people forget is the Cory League. The Cory League, which is in all 50 states and many countries across the globe, was founded in the 1930s by George Cory right here in St. Louis and is still headquartered here today. So it's a very foundation of baseball is through here St. Louis. And we had some of the greatest high school teams in the country. I mean, there was Beaumont, which in the 40s and 50s had more men in the major leagues than any other high school in the country. It goes through, you know, the sprawl across the river into Illinois and into the suburbs of St. Louis. And you had the great schools of Rittner and University City, Lafayette, putting men in the major leagues. You had Edwardsville in the 1990s, was voted the number one high school team in America by USA Today's coaches poll. And when you have good high school, you had good American Legion teams. And, you know, St. Louis had teams regularly in the hunt for the national championships for the American Legions. And as I spoke, there were so many men who, who played baseball, and they didn't want to give it up. And I, it's kind of under a title where I say they love the game and can withstand the pain. So they stay playing in senior leagues and semi-pro leagues, which were so big in the uh, uh, 50s and 60s. At that time, you might have a team of 18 men, 12 had played professionally, two or three or four had played in the major leagues. And you had basically teams in St. Louis playing each other every weekend that were better than most minor league teams in the country. So it was just this competitive, this love of the game. And it was, like I said, it, it is the religion of St. Louis. Now, in undertaking a project such as this, you certainly mm-hmm. kind of hint at you certainly an oral history element of that with your own experiences growing up with people certainly that you're familiar with in and around the community. But what other sources and archives were you kind of looking at to find, you know, the images and some of the yeah. other kind of basic data for the story? Well, as we said, really, you know, right off the bat, once people heard I was following up, you know, the Browns book, many of these men I had grown up as a bat boy too, and through my father's connection you know, brought me their scrapbooks. They brought me the stories. The men I played with who were on state championship or uh, American Legion champions, they brought me their scrapbooks and stories. But the St. Louis Amateur Baseball Hall of Fame provided their whole archives to me. The Corey League provided their whole archives to me. Martin Matthews of Matthews Dickey's Boys and Girls Club of St. Louis, Martin Matthews challenged me, make sure you create a history of the American African-American experience in St. Louis. What was their baseball? Because they lived in a segregated world. You know, they could not join in the growth of the major leagues and the minor leagues. So they had their own separate world that became the Negro Leagues. And St. Louis had some of the best uh, teams in that history. And then besides that, at a lower uh, semi-pro and amateur level was the Tandy Leagues, which, you know, produced many great ballplayers that went up into the Negro Leagues or the major leagues. So they opened up their archives, the St. Louis Cardinals archives. You know, I have the Browns archives. So, you know, it was just pretty much this is baseball in St. Louis. Everybody can be a part of it. 
everybody can enjoy. And that's where really the story comes out because baseball is an any man game, whether you play at a real competitive level or you're just out there having fun. It might be that, hey, I walked the halls of Rittner High School and I knew or played with Ron Hunt or Jerry Royce or I went to U-City and played with Art Shamsky or Kenny Holtzman or Lafayette with now uh, many great ball players coming out of Lafayette. Uh, you know, you had Ryan Howard and David Freeze, Luke Voigt. Uh, you just have that association. I watched him play. I went to school with him. Or I might have played against him. And it just, you know, gives you a great feeling. And uh, to learn this history, it's, it's memory lane when you look at all the, the history in high school and American Legion ball and who were the great players that played professional ball in St. Louis, you remember. Now, right now, usually would be beginning of the baseball season, but with COVID-19 and the pandemic and health concerns associated with that, you know, there's a delay of the baseball season and potentially a cancellation of the entire regular postseason. Has this happened before in baseball history in St. Louis in regards to a, a cancellation of whether illness or just even national tragedies and national issues? Well, we had a brief stoppage of baseball after 9-11, and I think most uh, view- listeners will remember that. And really, the only other thing comparable to that was in 1918. That's when the Spanish flu uh, swept across the globe, you know, killing uh, uh over 50 million almost, you know, they didn't have good counts, between 50 and 100 million. You know, in the United States, we lost 675,000 people. But that kind of came as the season was going on. But 1918 was also a year that there was something also going on across the world. It was World War I. Um, the United States had entered World War I in 1917. 1918, uh, baseball got underway in April, uh, but so was the war effort, it was at its top. Many of the players were leaving to enlist. Uh, there was a demand for uh, men to report in the military. So baseball actually shut down on September 1st, 1918, cut their uh, series sharp, more due to the war, even though this flu was starting to ramp up during the season. Uh, and then they played a, a quick World Series on uh, September 11th. Uh, they, they, they had a, a quick World Series. So they actually shut down uh, a month and a half early to uh, due to World War One, And that's the only other time baseball besides 9-11 has, has seen something like this. Now, the interesting thing is in World War II, because somebody said, well, why didn't they shut down in World War II? They shut down in World War One. Franklin Roosevelt, in the first week of January, came out with his green light letter because just weeks before Pearl Harbor had happened in December 1941, and everybody thought baseball would shut down. But in Roosevelt's green light letter, he wrote that we must have baseball. Baseball must continue. The American people are going to work long, long, hard hours in factories, shops to win this war. And they need something to come home to at night and sit with their family. And again, there's no TV. Uh, And it was, there will be night baseball on the radio. So baseball came and filled everyone's lives with great memories. And, you know, baseball had done the same thing the decade before during the Great Depression when, you know, there was poverty and people without jobs. But there was baseball. And when I go to a lot of retirement homes and I speak to people, 
And these are people in their 80s and 90s. They lived through the Depression. They lived through World War II. And they all tell you how much baseball meant to them. And that is some of the happiest memories they have in their life. So, but as I said at the start of this, baseball is the religion of St. Louis. And we're lost. We didn't have that great national holiday of opening day. Uh, you know, and now that we're getting into our second month, you know, the first month we could, you know, have some memories of, games or you can read about, well, this is what happened in spring training. You can see some repeat games on television, but now I think it's going to be more that longing for let's get out there and smell the green grass, listen to the crowd and, you know, have a hot dog and whether it'll happen or not, you know, crystal ball isn't clear yet. Now you'd mentioned earlier about that kind of pledge and really challenge to tell the African-American story of baseball in St. Louis, and 2020 is is the centennial of the Negro Leagues and their founding. And when people think about Missouri history and the Negro Leagues, they tend to focus on the team to the West, the Kansas City Monarchs. But St. Louis certainly had its own contributions to the Negro Leagues, as you kind of alluded to a little bit. So tell us some more about these notable connections between African-American baseball and the larger community of St. Louis. The, the recognition of Kansas City is, is well-deserved. Uh, baseball was the Negro Leagues were created 100 years ago in Kansas City, and that is where they have um, the, Nas- the Negro National Baseball uh, League Museum. And so rightly so, because that's, you know, give them the full credit. But St. Louis really does have a storied history. And baseball in St. Louis really, from the Negro League experience in one account, you know, it was a very segregated world. When baseball first came out, it came out as, you know, there was some amateur associations that evolved in this competition and teams wanting to make sure players didn't jump and stay. They signed a contract that led to professional baseball. But all these leagues in, at their very infancy in the late 1870s and 80s, they made it very clear that African-Americans were not welcome in their leagues. So just as the love of the game came across the uh, country, the African-American experience was to love the game just as much and play it. And they started playing their separate teams, playing each other in uh, a segregated world. But what's kind of interesting during this period, they played a lot of barnstorming games against white teams. So it wasn't just, you know, uh, you could only play black players. They did play white teams, but they could not join the other leagues formally. So you'll see many times barnstorming game notes throughout this period of the late 1800s and the early 1900s. And as baseball became more serious, they formed the Negro Leagues, as we said, 100 years ago. And there was a team in St. Louis, initially called the St. Louis Giants. They played uh, in a stadium called Giants Park right at Broadway and Clarence, which is, if you're familiar with St. Louis, it's at the base of O'Fallon Park, right around as Highway 70 makes a big bend on uh, as you head into downtown. And they played there for multiple years. Uh, prior to 1920, they were owned by a man who put the uh, contingent together named Charles Mills. And Charles Mills had good teams and good players, but he didn't have a good relationship uh, with the president of the Negro Leagues, Rube Foster. And it's almost uh, a story that will be repeated uh, in about 30 years when Bill Veck gets into issues with Major League Baseball and he is forced by Major League Baseball to sell the Browns. 
But at this period in 1920, Rube Foster, who is the president of the Negro Leagues, forces Charles Mills to sell the Giants. The team is purchased by another owner, and the St. Louis Giants became the St. Louis Stars and went on to produce great teams of the 1920s and early 30s. In fact, they won championships in 1928, 1930, and 31. They came in second place many other times. In 1928, people will recall the Cardinals were playing the Yankees for the, in the World Series, and the Yankees beat the Cardinals. But in 1928, it was the St. Louis Stars who were world champions in the city of St. Louis. And they were led by many, many great men. Uh, there's five men who are in uh, the National Hall of Fame up in Cooperstown that played for St. Louis's Negro Leagues team, either the Giants or Stars. And, you know, they were a force to be reckoned with. But as you got deeper into the 30s, the Depression caused financial woes. And then the Negro Leagues basically were folding due to financial trouble in the teams. And then they made a resurrection in the, in the mid 40s. And that's where we hear about the great. Kansas City Monarchs teams with Jackie Robinson and Satchel Paige and, and so forth. But that was short-lived because in 1957, when Jackie Robinson is signed to the Brooklyn uh, Dodgers by Branch Rickey, that opened up the doors for the men of the uh, Negro Leagues to get into the major leagues and the minor leagues. And that actually then became uh, the slow death of what was left of the, of the Negro Leagues. And you know, it was interesting in 1947, we all know Jackie Robinson joined Major League Baseball across the color line on April 15, 1947, and Larry Dolby did on, for the American League on July 5th. But the one thing that's forgotten in, in history of baseball across the whole country, I mean, I've even, you know, I did research up at the, the National Negro Baseball League Museum in Kansas City, and I said, where's the pictures of Hank Thompson and Willard Brown? The Browns signed Hank Thompson and Willard Brown. It was Bill DeWitt Sr., the father of uh, the St. Louis Cardinal chairman. He was the executive and president of the Browns. He signed these two men because he was looking for good players. And on July 19th, he had them both together, and they formed the first time two men, uh, African-Americans, played baseball on the same team. And it was right here in St. Louis, the most southern city in the major leagues. And, you know, the work I've done in, in uh, the museum in Kansas City, as well as the times I've been up speaking in Cooperstown, you know, I'd always go around and I'd ask, why don't we have these men? It's a forgotten tale, mainly because the Browns are a forgotten team. Here's the third and fourth men to cross the color line played for the Browns, and the Browns were the first team to have two African-Americans. And, uh, you know, we remember cool Papa Bell, but we don't remember the likes of Willie Wells or Oscar Charleston or Biz Mackey. Um, you know, they were the great men that are in the Hall of Fame from, from this Negro Leagues team. And one that's in the Negro Leagues, we didn't get to see him as a, on a team member in St. Louis uh, in the Negro Leagues, but we did get to see him in St. Louis as a member of the St. Louis Browns also with Satchel Page. People got to remember Satchel Page pitched for the Browns in 51, 52, and 53 and actually represented the Browns in 52 and 53 in the All-Star game. So there's, there is a very extensive history uh, that, that the Browns, I mean, excuse me, that the, that the Negro Leagues, St. Louis, and the African-American experience was there from a professional level. But it was also a very 
important part of amateur level, as I spoke earlier about the Tandy Leagues. The Tandy Leagues were created in North St. Louis. They played at Tandy Park, which sits right across from uh, Sumner High School. And the Tandy League was strictly uh, a black player league because they couldn't get anywhere else. And it produced many men that went on uh, to the Negro Leagues and then some that eventually made it to to the uh, the major leagues after 1947. So it is looked upon as a great feeder of African-American baseball and some of the probably the greatest St. Louis that people forget about who came out of St. Louis as a major leaguer and African-American is Elson Howard. Elson Howard came out of Vashon High School and, uh, you know, people forget that. So he is the greatest uh, African-American major league baseball player in most people's opinion. There really is a lot of fascinating information about, as you mentioned, some players that most people don't recognize and think about um, when they're discussing right. the history of baseball, especially in the mid-20th century. Right. I think about kind of larger Missouri sports history in terms of championships, people often associate the 1985 I-70 series between the Cardinals and the Royals, but just as important, perhaps, was the 1944 World Series, which was between the Browns and the Cardinals. Uh, tell us a little about that World Series and what it meant for the city of St. Louis. Well, I think that is the most important event, personally, yeah, in, in St. Louis and Missouri baseball history. 1944, the Cardinals and the Browns. Now, the Cardinals had been in the, in the World Series, you know, in 26, 28, 30, 31, 34, 42, and 43. So Branch Rickey built a dynasty with the Cardinals. The irony of the whole story is, Branch Rickey started with the Browns. He was a player for the Browns. He was the general manager, the president. He didn't own him. The problem is he clashed with the owner, two egos, big, and he left the Browns uh, because he couldn't get what he wanted. What he wanted was the minor league system that he could produce talent because in those days they didn't have draft. You could you would just sign free agents. He figured he could uh, develop talent and sign it and keep it in as I listed all those World Series appearances, he did. If he would have stayed with the Browns, you know, who knows? This might have been a Brownstown today instead of a Cardinal. But Ranch Rickey had created this great team. The Browns finally put together a good team in 1944. And they won. Now, some people would say, well, they won in the war years. Bill DeWitt Sr. did a fabulous job finding players and working out situations where you know they could work in the factory on these days and play baseball on these nights and days or we had men who would take trains from another city as they work and meet the Browns and pitch for them uh so the Browns finally make it and this is like I said the pinnacle of baseball the eyes of St. Louis the world are on Sportsman's Park it's only the second time in baseball history that all the games have only the second time city uh, had been played in the same stadium. In 21 and 22, uh, the Yankees and Giants played at the Polo Grounds before Yankee Stadium opened in 1923. Uh, so they had shared that. So it's, it's, a, it's a second occurrence of all the games, and it's the last one that's happened. So the eyes of the world are on St. Louis. It's also, interestingly, the 40th anniversary of the St. Louis World's Fair from 1904. And you know what? The t those country was singing that year? 
country was singing Meet Me in St. Louis because that was the year the movie, Judy Garland movie, Meet Me in St. Louis, and the famous song came out. So it was on the 40th anniversary while the world was singing Meet Me in St. Louis. You had to come to St. Louis to uh, watch the World Series. It was all here. And it was a, it was a really good World Series. And it was interesting. The Cardinals had also been able to keep a lot of their good players out of the draft, like Stan Musial. And they had kept that same team from 42 and 43. And those were no teams to sneeze at. And the Cardinals won 106 games in 1942. They won 105 games in 43 and 105 games again in 44. And this was during a 154-game uh, season. And they had the National League MVP in Mort Cooper from 42. Stan Musial was the MVP in 43 and Marty Marion in 44. So they were a dynamo. But Stan Musial has always uh, talked about this was different when they came in to play the Browns that year in the World Series because they were the underdog. It seemed the whole town was rooting for the Browns to win. And the Browns won the first game. I was like, here we go. And they were winning the second game except Nels Potter messed up a bunt from Max Lanier and he threw the ball into the right field corner and the Cardinals were able to come back and tie and win the game. And it would have been, you know, he doesn't make that error. The Browns likely would have been up two games to none. The Browns won the third game and they uh, could have been up three games to none. But instead they were up two to one going into uh, the fourth game. And from there, the depth of the Cardinals, this dynasty kind of took over. It was also a game of, they set strikeout records uh, and a few errors records on the Brown side, but the strikeouts were what we really prevailed. And a lot of it they blame on, they opened up center field bleachers at Sportsman Park. And in those days, everybody was wearing white uh, dress shirts and it kind of obliterated uh, batter's eye a little bit, but it was, it was the world was all about baseball in St. Louis. And the other thing that there's another parallel to it, if you're familiar with the Bing Crosby movie, Going My Way, in which he plays the uh, Catholic priest. That Throughout that movie, you'll see Bing Crosby wearing Brown's regalia. He's got a Brown's hat. He's got a Brown's sweatshirt. He's got a Brown's warm-up jacket on. And that was kind of like, this whole premonition between the, the Judy Garland movie, the Bing Crosby movie, it was all about the Browns and St. Louis, except the Cardinals were a dynasty. And, you know, they, they would come back and make the playoffs in 46, I mean, go to the World Series. They came in in second in 45, and 45 was the year Musial did finally get drafted. But this was the baseball world was focused totally on St. Louis in 44, both sides. Now, during our time here, you've talked about a lot of <clears throat> fantastic players and a lot of notable teams. Um, in your opinion, if you can, what do you think was the best team in St. Louis baseball history? Well, I mean, baseball's played a little differently in different decades. You know, the games change. I mean, you know, and so it's a, it's a it's a little bit. I mean, you can go back, as I said. From a high school perspective, you could say, well, those Beaumont teams that, you know, just destroyed everybody, put more men in the major league from a high school perspective, or, you know, the, the Edwardsville team in high school, which was the number one in the country 
uh, under Coach Tom Pyle over in Edwardsville. But from a professional baseball, some would tell you uh, the St. Louis Browns of 1922, led by George Sisler, who hit for three straight years, his average was over 400. You know, it would seem in 1922 the Browns were destined to win the, the pennant. Sisler got hurt in early September and couldn't play uh, the rest of the, the year. He was in the midst of a 41-game hitting streak, which was the lead until DiMaggio broke it. They were also coming up against the Yankees, and it came down to a sudden death with the with the Yankees in the last series, and the Yankees won out, and the, and the Browns came in and, and, and lost the pennant by one game. They had a tremendous outfield, the only outfield in baseball history. The same men played for over five years, all batted over 300. It's never been done before. Could have been in six straight years, except Johnny Tobin hit 299. Uh, it was an outfield of Kenny Williams, Baby Dow Jacobson, and Johnny Tobin, one of the, one of the best offensive hitting outfields of, of, of all time. But you really got to come down to and say, the Redbird Swifties, I think that team that I spoke of a moment ago, where they pretty much stayed together for the years for 1942, 43, and 44. And they won, you know, 320, uh, I mean, 316 games, you know, 106, 105, 105. To me, that was the best baseball in St. Louis when the, when the uh, Cardinals played in the 1940s. And they were, their nickname was the Swifties. You know, they had, you know, great pitching. Uh, you know, they had a great outfield. You know, you had Musial, Slaughter, and Moore. You know, you had Shandies at second. You had Marty Marion at third. I mean, excuse me, Marty Marion at short. Uh, the Cooper brothers pitching, Martin uh, pitching, Walker catching. It was just solid every way. And, you know, you come back to Whitey Ball, which was a totally different. You think Swifties and you think, well, Whitey Ball, you know, Whitey of the – 285, 87 was, was great, but I think it still really comes down to, you asked me, it would be the 1940s teams of the St. Louis Cardinals. Thank you very much for joining us today. Well, I'm glad to be here. Anytime. Uh, it, it's always great to talk about baseball, and right now I think you're doing a service because people miss it so bad. Thank you for listening to the R Missouri Podcast. If you would like to learn more about the podcast, including past and future episodes, information about guests, and upcoming events, please visit our website at shsmo.org forward slash our dash Missouri.